Awesome. It's so good to be with you this morning. My name is Janice. I am one of the pastors on staff around here. It is so good to be with you and to be bringing the second message in our Christmas series. Pastor Joe kicked it off last week talking about the spirit of anticipation. And uh, I got to thinking about that and I'm like, anticipation requires something. And it requires something that we usually find particularly annoying. If you are anticipating uh, going online for some important piece of information, maybe you're trying to figure out your, download your grades, maybe you're waiting on an email on a job that you're hunting, whatever it is, and, you, and chances are you'll have slow Wi-Fi, right? And uh, you'll be struggling with a spotty internet connection. Maybe you are uh, anxious for medical attention, or maybe you're waiting for, um, to hear results from a pathology report. Chances are you're going to encounter a waiting room. Perhaps you are desperate for a chicken sandwich. You know what you're facing, don't you? You're facing a line, a line wrapped around Chick-fil-A. I know this because I live near Chick-fil-A, and I can't think of a single time we have driven by where there has not been a line. Even if it's 2.41 in the afternoon, I don't understand it exactly, but there is usually a line. I'm telling you, anticipation requires time. Time spent waiting. And it's an important factor in it. If we get everything we want exactly when we want it, you would anticipate nothing. You would look forward to nothing. There would never be delayed satisfaction. You would immediately get whatever you want. So anticipation cannot happen without a wait. And the Christmas story is filled with anticipation. It's filled with a wait. I would suggest to you that the Christmas season is filled with a wait because if we had it our way, we'd have Christmas in a moment and there would be no season because we have this buildup that involves all the music and the preparation and the celebration and the remembering and everything that goes into it. We need the wait. So last week, we talked about anticipation out of the book of Isaiah, specifically in terms of prophecy and what was going to happen with the birth of Christ. Now, we're going to bounce all the way over top of the birth of Jesus, and we're going to talk about it from the other end, from a couple of people that have notoriously been missing from our nativity scene, and I'm a little offended by it. Uh, does anybody remember nativity sets? Do we have the, I don't see them much anymore, but nativity sets are extremely inaccurate. It, they're just this collection of folks that um, came to see Jesus at some point in his life, but I'm telling you, they did not meet one another, right? The shepherds and the wise men or the magi, really, we don't know that they ever encountered one another at all. So if the only collective thing they have in common is that they witnessed the birth of Jesus in some fashion and recognized an infant as the Messiah, then these two people we're going to talk about today deserve to be there. They deserve to be in the nativity in that weird little stable thing with the sweet baby Jesus in that little manger that looks like it was built from two befores at Lowe's. I don't know that that's what those all look like, but whatever. So if you're following along today, we're going to work out of the book of Luke, the second chapter, uh, a little bit late in the chapter. Those of you who um, are interested in the Christmas story, maybe you're not familiar with your Bibles, you weren't raised in, in church, that's okay. You will find all the details that we have about the particular narrative of the birth of Jesus in the first two chapters of Matthew and the first two chapters of Luke. And so this is kind of the final uh, scene that we have of anyone encountering the infant uh, baby Jesus. All right, so we're going to start in um, Luke 2, starting in verse 22. 
follow along with me on the screens or um, in your Bibles. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him, Jesus, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it was written in the law of the Lord. Every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the word of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. I'm interested in this because when uh, I did the copy and paste thing and sent it off to the folks who make the screens, I got to looking at it, and it auto-corrected to Detroit instead of devout. So Simeon was righteous and Detroit, maybe. I don't know. But really, it was devout. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant, meaning himself, in peace. Just kill me now. For my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light of revelation for revelation to the Gentiles with the glory of your people and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Peniel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, but then was a widow until she was 84. She had never left the temple, but she never left the temple, but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. There was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon who was righteous and devout, and he was waiting. You know, we have a posture for worship. We have a posture for uh, coming to God in that way. And, and by posture, I mean the way that we hold our bodies, the way that we um, arrange our minds. You know, you may bow your head, you may close your eyes, you may... Um, kneel. Uh, you may focus your mind when you're in worship. And I think sometimes when it comes to this concept of waiting, that a lot of us who are, are tired of waiting sometimes think it's some sort of punishment that God is giving to us for something we have done to disappoint him or whatever, or, or God is just holding out on us. And so, in other words, if we were godly enough, we would get this. And I'm here to tell you that Simeon was godly. He was righteous and devout and yet he was waiting. So I am telling you that waiting is a posture for the godly. If you are in a place of waiting this morning, it is not a mark on your character. It is not God holding out on you in some way. It can be the mark of the godly. But there's things we can learn about this waiting, right? Waiting is not this punishment. The way we wait tells on us. The way we wait tells us what we're still hoping for. The way we wait also tells us what we've given up on. 
Sometimes the way we wait is a mark of maturity. You know, I mean, are, are you practicing something righteous and devout, or, or are you throwing a temper tantrum like a toddler in the aisle at Walmart who wants their stuff right now, and they're not getting it from a parent who is saying, not right now, that's not coming. Think about the last thing that you have thrown a fit about. What's the last thing you've had a little temper tantrum about because it wasn't happening fast enough? A stoplight? A chicken sandwich? Um, I, I don't know. The things, you know, and sometimes we're not very righteous and devout when we're waiting. We, get, we struggle with that in, in so many ways because we want things right now. So this morning I want to talk about the spirit of waiting. The spirit of waiting. And instead of giving you, if you're taking notes, instead of giving you like a list of points of these are the things you should know, I felt like God was inviting me to give you a few questions for you to process. So here's the first one. Number one, where do you wait? Where do you wait? I suggest that where you wait says something about you because where you wait says something about the people who are around you, the people who aren't around you, whether you're in absolute solitude, that all makes a difference. Notice that Simeon was nudged by the Spirit. He was moved by the Spirit and he came to the temple. That's where he came. Now, for him, and in that day and age, the temple was not just a church building. The temple was basically the presence of God. That was the representation of God. That's where you encountered God. That's where you brought sacrifice to him. That's where you worshiped him. And, um, and so he came to God in his waiting. Anna, on the other hand, never left the, the temple. She never left it. Now, perhaps because of her occupation as uh, part of uh, being a prophet and part of that tribe, it could be that that was her residence and that she was there. But she is in, both of them are in the presence of community of like-minded folk who are waiting for similar things who are holding out hope for similar things. They are rowing in the same direction. And I'm telling you, when we're waiting for something, it is helpful to be with people who, are, who have their feet pointed in the same direction, who have the, their feet pointed in the direction that you want to go and are looking forward to the same promise. Where your wait, where you wait will affect how you wait. Where you spend your time waiting will affect what you're doing while you're waiting. Notice what Anna was doing. She was worshiping, she was praying, and she was fasting. Now that sounds super holy and super boring if that's all she ever did. But I am telling you what that says to me is those are spiritual practices. Those are things, those are rhythms that she had created in her life during this time of waiting. And she had grown very old. It is important in a time of waiting to consider your spiritual practices. What is the rhythm of how you approach God? What are you spending time doing during that time? Now, worship is so easy and fun when you're feeling fulfilled and thankful and you're making progress on your dreams and your hopes and things are happening. But what about when you're frustrated? What about when you're getting older by the minute? What about when people around you are passing you by and your dreams are evaporating? You know, the pastor reminds us that Christmas is a rescue mission. How do you wait when you're waiting for a rescue? 
few years ago, I was teaching at the University of Kentucky, and uh, my office was on the 17th floor of Patterson Office Tower. Um, There's only 18 floors there, and uh, where most of the faculty are all housed. And so, if you know anything about a building like that on a college campus, um, the elevators, there were six of them, but when they're all working on a similar class schedule, we had what we called rush hour at the elevators. And so, there's a particular point in time when all the professors are trying to get down the, to um, their classroom and out the door, so elevators are very full, and uh, one particular day, I hopped on an elevator with, that was built for 12, and 11 of us got on. Uh, you know, we're just going to put up with the misery, try to get all the way down to, the, to where we need to be, and, and, you know, add all of our bags and briefcases and everything else, and that was easily the 12th person. Well, um, we started off going really well, uh, heading down, as we should have, and came to a screeching halt between floors 12 and 13 evenly between floors 12 and 13. And one of the things you'll know if you've ever been stuck in an elevator for any length of time is it's like the air conditioning quits. I don't know, but now it's just this, this smokestack of a heat that you're all in, or, or we were all anxious. That could be it. I don't know. But anyway, people are sweating. Can I say that? Um, so we immediately do what you should do. We call the little you know, emergency number and somebody answered who thought we were joking. I think they should have been able to tell from the sounds of the people in the elevator that it was definitely not a joke. And these are all professional academics that I am stuck in an elevator with. But I'm telling you, when you're waiting for a rescue, it will show you who you are. And I figured out who I am. When I am in a place like that, I immediately go silent into this little tunnel silo thing, and I've got nothing. I, I am of no help at all, but, I am, I, but I'm not making any noise. I am... The chair of our department was in that elevator as well, and I, I am just here to tell you she lost her mind. She, she lost her mind. She was hysterical, and there was no calming her down. There's 11 of us, and there's nothing to do with her. I mean, it was crazy. We're in there for 20 minutes until some little uniform guys came and with crowbars cried, pried the doors open, and now we can see the floor, and they had to hoist us up and over onto the 13th floor, which was even more frightening than being in the elevator. I want you to know that. So it tells you something about yourself. It also, what you do after that tells you something about how you wait that many people decided um, after that particular event that they would take the stairs. And they took the stairs all the way down. Um, I decided that unless I was willing to take the stairs for the rest of my life, 17 flights every day, that the chances and odds of me getting in another stuck elevator the same day were slim, and I hopped on another one and, and got down. But um, to each their own, however you want to do that, it makes a difference how you wait. How you wait tells you something about yourself. Notice how Simeon was waiting. While Simeon was waiting, the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him that he would not die before he saw the Messiah, and moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. In other words, in this period of waiting, the Holy Spirit is very active in his life. He is attuned to what's going on. He is attuned to his relationship with God. He can hear. You, you can't have something revealed to you if you're not paying attention and listening to that. And Simeon is doing that in the middle of his wait. So first of all, he's not freaking out. He does not spend his wait time freaking out. He is also not passive. He is active in his relationship with God. He is not Netflixing his way through his wait you know, just kind of numbing out. He's not mindlessly scrolling through social media during his wait. This is also what he is not doing. He is not getting himself so busy building a personal dynasty to himself 
during his wait time. He's working on his relationship with God and listening to him so that he can respond to God's nudge. The Spirit of God is on him. He hears from God in the wait, and he responds in the wait by showing up, by showing up. I felt like God wanted to say this morning, where is the Spirit nudging you to show up? I just want that to sit for a little bit. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe God wants you to show up in your marriage in ways that you haven't been doing recently. Maybe your job. Maybe school. Maybe church or your family. There's a million prompts you can put here. But I'm saying that in the middle of this wait, Simeon doesn't check out of life. He doesn't check out of life. And when God prompts him, he shows up. Second question. What are you becoming as you wait? What are you becoming as you wait? You know, we launched an Advent series this uh, year that we're real excited about, and if you haven't been checking it out, it is a blog post that drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday on our website, and if you're friends with anybody at the Vineyard who's sharing it, you can latch onto it in that way as well. We also have a reading plan that's on a, um, uh, a bookmark that you can pick up out at the connection desk, but the theme of our Advent series is becoming is becoming. Because here's the reality. We're all becoming something. We are. Intentionally or unintentionally, we are becoming something. Let's do a personal inventory. I'm going to list off a whole bunch of things, and you self-identify any of these that latch onto you. I was going to put them in a list up there so you could see them, but I didn't get that done. Just, just listen to this. In the process of your life, are you becoming more hopeful? Are you becoming more devoted discouraged, more certain, more bitter? Are you becoming more convinced, more agitated, more doubtful, more fearful, more cynical, more dependable, more lonely, more peaceful? See, I think a lot of us want to think that we can just manage this static life. You know, you, you, if you talk to somebody and it's like, are, you know, are you growing in God? Oh, I just, I'm just kind of in a, mm, I'm in a holding pattern. I'm just kind of in a stalemate. I'm not sure there is that spot. I'm not sure that's a reality because we're all becoming something every day. You are probably about 40 minutes more of something right now than you were when you walked in the front door. I don't know what that is. You are a full seven days more of something than you were last Sunday when you were here, if you came last week. Or even if you didn't, you're seven more of something since last Sunday. You are a year more of something than you were last year during the Christmas season. Where there is no static. We're all becoming something one way or another. You are either pointing your feet toward Jesus and following him and attempting to, to um, live for him, or you're not. You're either coming to Jesus on a regular basis and saying, God, here is where I've sinned. Help me restore my faith, or you're not. You have either surrendered your life to Jesus and you have dedicated your life to living for him, or you have not. There, there's not this um, flat ground that you get to, to inhabit. Because when we come to Jesus, and this is what every person in the Christmas story noticed, when you encounter the Christ child, you are changed. 
We like to say at the vineyard, come as you are, but don't stay that way. You know why? Because you can't. You can't stay that way. Scripture tells us that when you surrender to Jesus, you become a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. You cannot remain the same. We are all changed. Every character in the Christmas story became someone new. They put in the time and they waited. Third question, what will your wait accomplish? What will your wait accomplish? You know, as, um, if you know the, the Christmas story written by Luke, this one in particular, these are eyewitness accounts. Now, given that Luke is probably about the age of Jesus, given what we know about his later life, chances are he w- did not eyewitness account Simeon and Anna holding the baby Jesus, right? So this is, some, this is information that he probably got handed down to him um, that had to have come from Mary and Joseph themselves. So I'm imagining that Jesus' mama told him that. Now, the fact that Jesus' mama is telling him about an encounter with Simeon and Anna tells me that this encounter has much more to do with Mary than it has to do with Simeon and Anna, right? Our encounter is not just for us. Simeon's fulfilled promise is an encouragement to Mary and Joseph. Even when he says, times are going to be hard, but this child is a sign. You know, this is something she's going to be able to lean on later when these hard times do show up. Even when times are hard, it is good because our weight gives other people hope. Simeon's weight ends up giving hope to Mary and to Joseph. Pastor Joe and I were at a pastor's conference out in uh, California sometime a few years ago, and Uh, No, it was actually in Phoenix, not that that matters. But anyway, there was a series of of sessions, and the one that stuck out to me the most was by a pastor that we know and and care about who leads a rather large church in the vineyard, and uh, and he did something on a topic that uh, that was unique, and he said, what keeps you going in hard times? That was the title. We all wanted to go to that one. What keeps you going in hard times? And what we were expecting the answer to be was probably, um, you know, either like three special magic verses or perhaps, uh, you know, a list of things to do, a particular way of praying or a rhythm of some sort that kept you going. No, that was not what he said. And he described some pretty hard times. For him, the hard times were a personal crisis in his own family with his own daughter, at the same time that there had been a moral failure of one of his most prominent staff members that resulted in a lawsuit from the woman the man failed with against his entire church and the organization, at the same time that there was some um, group in his community who was picketing his church parking lot every Sunday morning. It was just, that's just a little bit going on for somebody to deal with. And so we're waiting for his, his answer on how do you deal with hard times? What keeps you going? And this is what he said. Other people's pain. And I thought, wow, that is cold. That is other people's pain that makes you feel good. That's really what you're saying? And this is how he described it. He said, when times are really tough for me, I found myself digging into not just scripture, but I would read biographies of other deeply influential Christian people, C.S. Lewis, Spurgeon, people who have made incredible contributions to the faith and to what we do now as church. He said, and if you read their biographies, you'll find out not just the glorious things that they did for the church and the things that they wrote, but the crises going on behind the scenes and the things they put up with and the stuff that was happening and the pain that they endured. He said, and then I began to think, if they can do it, I can do it. 
If they can do it, I can do it. If you are in a particularly difficult weight cycle, there are people around you who may be going through similar weight cycles, and if they can do it, you can do it. We have the opportunity for our particular uh, hard times to be helpful to others. Get this, Anna and Simeon were elderly people. We don't really know how old Simeon was because we don't know when he got his revelation, but we do know that Anna was an old person. We kind of assumed that they were both elderly because he said, take me now, I'm gonna die, whatever. Um, our only version of them though is their finish line. We don't know anything about their early life except these couple of verses. We don't know how they lived. We don't know anything about this. But according to this scripture, the sum of their life was spent in waiting. The sum total of their life is spent in waiting. They don't get the fulfillment of this until right before they die. Their lives were not a litany of fulfilled promises and hopes and dreams. Hebrews 11 speaks to this. Hebrews 11, 1 and 2. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. The ancients mean those heroes of old, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, and Daniel, and David, and all of these famous people. That's what they were commended for. It goes on in verse 13 through 16. All of these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they were looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. I'm telling you, God is in the waiting. God is in the waiting. So don't cheat yourself out of anticipation. Let's, do, let's resist the, the desire to hurry everything up to where there's no anticipation whatsoever. We have got to quit comparing a quick fix to the long-term healing that God may have in store for us. Even in the New Testament, when Jesus was healing people who were in front of him, some people were healed instantaneously. Other people, it took time. They gradually regained their eyesight. Some of the best things God has for us may only come with time and process and understanding may not even be in the, in the mix. That may be a delayed event at best, at best. The wise men got two years to imagine the new king. Mary got nine months to think about, marvel, doubt, anticipate how it was all gonna work. The nation of Israel had thousands of years to expect the Messiah. Your 5.4 minute wait at Chick-fil-A will be okay. That's exactly how long the internet says it takes these days. It's always worth it. It's always worth it. Imagining, thinking about, marveling, even doubting, that's all part of the wait. It's all part of that. Anna and Simeon put in the time. They never gave up because the joy of seeing the salvation was so much sweeter for that. You know, whenever I think about the Anna and Simeon story, um, I, I remember my uh, mama. My mama was in her 80s when I got married. I was her youngest of 25 grandchildren, and uh, I was very close to her. She lived near us, and uh, I was so pleased that she was at our wedding. And very soon after that, she had a stroke, and uh, I don't know 
what it was ever diagnosed as. But the, uh, the bottom line is she didn't really know us anymore. She was functional and walked around, but she was kind of just didn't know who we were. And, and uh, she was pleasant to be with. But at any rate, a year or so later when I had a baby, uh, I desperately wanted her to see my baby and to know my baby, but at very least to see it. So um, I went over to her home. My aunt took care of her in her own home. And I remember walking into the living room as she was standing there. And, uh, and I walked up to her and I uh, said, Mama, here's my baby. She took that baby in her arms and for about five minutes, she was there. She knew me. She looked at me, she looked at the baby, she looked back at me, she smiled, and I knew that she knew me, and then she was gone. She was still standing there, but then she just kind of drifted off and was like we had known her to be. There's something special and sweet about the knowing, about the knowing. I just imagine Simeon coming to the temple, and surely he's been there many, many times. That can't have been the only time he was moved to go to the temple. He's probably passed by millions and millions of little babies, but this time he knew there was a knowing. And when God answers a promise of whatever it is that you're waiting for, there is a sweet, sweet knowing when that moment comes. I'm telling you, we need anticipation in our lives. We need it. Anticipation requires a wait. We have to be willing to do that. Deep inside, we know as good parents that it's not smart to let our children open their Christmas gifts before Christmas. You know that's not a good idea. You kind of ruin the whole thing. How many of you fess up, snuck around when you were a kid and got into the presents before Christmas? I went in there one year. I'll never forget it. I unwrapped very carefully my gift. I saw what it was and then wrapped it back up. Worst Christmas ever right? Worst Christmas ever. I still got the present, but it just wasn't the same, right? You don't want to do that. We ruin the whole thing. And as an author, God sets up the very best narrative tension when he writes this story. Think about it. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, God could have sent the Messiah, the Savior, that very minute. If, in fact, if you go back to Genesis, it's even spoken of there. He could have, because that's when they needed the Savior, right then. They needed him right away. But instead, God sets up this very long story as a master writer, a master plan that will take thousands of years, build anticipation, allow us to see the goodness of God, deals with rebellion and resistance, and it's a fabulous story, even down to the very timeline of the Christmas birth. Um, and it's an incredible amount of tension built into that. Um, it, it's not like the writers of a, you know, a good TV series like Lost, where the writers come in every week and make it up as they go and hope they don't paint themselves in a corner. God knew exactly where he was going. He knew the whole time where he was going. So here's what I want to tell you today. Don't rush the wait. Don't rush the wait. When we rush God, we start demanding stuff that he might actually give us. And we will wish he had not. Don't skip the cooking, right? We all know that a made-from-scratch cinnamon roll is a world better than one of those things you get out of the little biscuit thing that you buy in the refrigerator section at Kroger, right, that cooks in 10 minutes. Those are tasty, but not the same. Don't get desperate in your weight and start making stuff up. Start making your own plan to, to figure things out. So don't rush the weight. Don't waste the weight. 
Don't let the pain and frustration and doubt and disappointment that you're, that you're experiencing be wasted. Use that as ministry with other people. Don't get paralyzed in that place and just sit there in a corner waiting for God to give you what you want before you get up and you do anything. Last year in Vineyard uh, University that we offered classes during the winter, I spoke to the singles a little bit about this and I asked them, what are the things in your life that you are waiting to do until you have a spouse? And you don't feel like you want to do that until you have a spouse. Things like buying a house, things like just saving money, uh, going on vacation, all of these things that sometimes people are like, oh, my life is not in order yet, so I can't do any of these things. Don't waste that time. Go ahead and do the things that God has given you. Don't waste your weight. Finally, share your weight. Share your weight with others. I love this part about Anna. Coming up to them at that very moment, Anna gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward. Our anticipation experienced in waiting is never just for our personal satisfaction. It's never just for us. Anna shared it with anyone who was in earshot because it's a promise that is fulfilled, that gives glory to God for who he is. And when God has answered a long-awaited promise or dream, we cannot keep it to ourselves. We dare not keep it to ourselves. We must share it with others. This long-awaited birth of Jesus, this rescue mission must be shared with others. Folks, we're in this Christmas season and we have the opportunity. We have the opportunity to invite people to come in with us. I'm telling you, folks are vulnerable during uh, this, this season, more vulnerable than any other time of year, right? People, people get depressed during this time of year. They need community during this time of year. You have the answers. You know the rescue mission. Invite someone to come with you during the season to one of the many, many events that is going on in this church and other churches all over this town during this season. 